Uh, but before we go, I have a, a little funny story I want to share with you. I got tickled with it, so I'll bring some laughter to you this morning. There was a, there was a little boy who wanted a new bicycle for Christmas. And so he prayed and he prayed and he prayed and he asked God. He said, God, I just really would love to have this bicycle. If, if, if you give me this bicycle, I'll, I'll do my chores. I'll obey my parents. I'll get my homework done. I'll be the perfect child. Well, he goes off and praying, and he starts to think about it, and he thinks maybe a little overshot a little too far. So he says, Lord, if you'll just please give me this bicycle, I, I tell you what, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll do my homework, I'll do my chores, and, and I'll, be, I'll obey my parents. So he walked away, and he decides to come back again. He said, man, maybe that's just a little too much for me. I'm having a hard time with this. So he said, Lord, for this bicycle, please, please let me have, please let me have it. I said, here's what I'll do. I'll obey my parents, and, and I'll do my chores at least. Okay, Lord, I'll do that. Well, he left, and he got to thinking again, and he realized this just isn't going to work out. So he gets on his bicycle. He takes his little red wagon. He goes down to the, to the church right down the street, and there in the manger scene, uh, scene he, he grabs the, uh, the, the statue of Mary, places it in his little red wagon. He comes back to the house. He carries the statue of Mary into his bedroom and he puts the statue of Mary in his closet and then he goes to pray at his bed and he says, he said, dear God, you know how much I want this bike. He said, but if you don't give it to me, you ain't going to see your mother again. <laughs> I don't know if anybody, y'all, y'all had ch children like that, but, uh, but I tell you, it's <laughs> I thought to myself, Okay, that's one way to get your Christmas present, huh? <laughs> I said, but I don't think God works that way. But, you know, folks, Christmas season is a, is a wonderful season, but every year the world misses the real story of Christmas. In the publication Daily Bread, it said this, in December of 1903, after many attempts, the Wright brothers were successful in getting their flying machine off the ground. Thrilled, they telegraphed their, the, a message to their sister Catherine and says, We have finally flown 120 feet. We'll be home for Christmas. Well, Catherine hurried to the editor of the local newspaper and showed him the message, and he glanced at it and he said, How nice. The boys will be home for Christmas. He had totally missed the big news that man had finally flown. You know, sometimes we can get so caught up in the hustle and bustle of buying gifts and decorating our homes and so forth that we, risk, we miss the real reason for this season, and it's Jesus, folks. We've seen the T-shirts. We like to wear them. The reason for the season is Jesus. You know, in my opinion, I think Jesus is the reason for every season, if you ask me. His birth brought me salvation because He was born to die. But what a blessing to know that God had prepared this beforehand. Before the foundation of the world, the Scriptures tell us that Jesus was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God had already planned this and put it in purpose before He even said, let there be light. Now, to me, that just blows my mind when I think about it. But too many times, Christmas turns into what we want instead of what we really need. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you please stand with me as we read God's Word in honor to God's Word this morning. We're going to look at Micah chapter 5, and we're going to look at just verse 2 for right now. But it simply says this, But you, Bethlehem, 
Ephrathah. Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the privilege and the honor to stand in this pulpit, Lord. And, and God, I thank you for Pastor Tim, Lord, who has preached the word so faithfully. And God, I pray that today, Lord, you would just hide me behind the cross of Jesus Christ. And God, that I would only proclaim the truth of your word. That I would be faithful as our pastor has been faithful to your word, Lord. And that God, that today your word will change us. For what good, Lord, if we hear the word of God, but we don't apply it to our lives? Lord, we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at this place called Bethlehem. We're going to look at the people, and then we're going to look at the purpose behind Bethlehem. But as we begin, this place called Bethlehem, what makes it so unique? Do you know that the term, the, the, this city of Bethlehem is mentioned 53 times in Scripture? And it has a lot of significance in the biblical narrative. God had such a big plan in this small little city just right outside of Jerusalem. And I, I learned this in my studies years ago, but do you know there are actually two different cities named Bethlehem? Two different cities. One is in the north. It's about seven miles from Nazareth. And the one in the south is about five miles from Jerusalem and about 80 miles from Nazareth. And that's the one that we're going to focus in on today is that southern city of Bethlehem in the state of Judah. The term Bethlehem actually means house of bread. It comes from the Hebrew two words, which is bet, which is house of, and then lehem, which is bread. And it's fitting, I feel this morning, because I want you to think about this. Who did Jesus claim to be? The bread of life. He said that in, in John 6, 35. He says, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus was making it clear that he was the answer for all of humanity. And folks, it breaks my heart as I, as I look around our world today and the one thing they're trying to push out more than anything else is Jesus Christ. They're trying to push out his people. Do you know that, the, that Christians are on the UN's list for terrorist groups? I found this out not too long ago that even in the, in the secular college system where they're teaching our teachers, there's a book. I wish I could remember the name of the book. I gotta, I've been trying to find it. I can't remember. But it talks about how evangelism is a hate crime. It's oppression. We have been trying to get rid of Jesus since the day he was born. But I'm going to tell you something, folks. Jesus is going to be here long after this world will. He reigns eternally and He is the bread of life. He is the one who gives us everything that we need. He's the one that can save our souls. And He came to this little town called Bethlehem and was born. You know, there's some other significant, uh, significant events here that I want to share, you about, share with you about. Um, one thing is, is, that, is that Bethlehem is actually is the death place of Rachel, Jacob's wife. She actually died here giving birth to Benjamin. And I, as I was studying uh, these last few months over this, I found out the name Benjamin actually means son of my right hand. It is also the place that David was anointed king of Israel and the place of his birth. And the name David means beloved. 
So I want you to think about that. Put that together. Beloved Son of my right hand. Who else has been known as that? Is but Jesus Christ Himself. Many of us remember the story of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite woman. Her husband had died. Naomi was her mother-in-law, and she decided to go back with Naomi to the land of, of Israel. And while there, she placed herself before Boaz to be her kinsman redeemer, to be the one that would take her in. And as we learned last week, Pastor gave us that little quiz. I thought it was pretty exciting. And we, we talked about that Wednesday, about some new things that people had learned from that, from that message. But, you know, understanding that Matthew's genealogy had Ruth within it, a Moabite woman, a, a pagan woman, a woman that came from a, a place that was not godly and a people that were not godly. You know, when you think about the genealogies of of Jesus, and you look at Matthew and Luke, and you see the two different ones. You know, both mention David, and, and it's understood to this, that Matthew is believed to be the Joseph genealogy, and Luke is believed to be Mary's genealogy. Now you say, why would God give more than just Joseph's? Because usually that's what they went by, was the male. It was, it was so forth. Well, remember, Jesus didn't have an earthly father, did he? He was born of Mary. He was born a virgin. And I want you to understand this, that some would say, well, if he's going to claim that, then he doesn't have the right to be called the king of Israel. He doesn't right to be called the king of the Jews. He doesn't have that right. So what God did, and I love how God does this, he said, all right, I'll give you two genealogies, one from Mary, one from, uh, from Joseph, and they'll both go back to David. And guess what? Jesus has the right to be the king of the Jews. And nobody can take that from him. Bethlehem, as we see in Micah 5, 2, is prophesied birthplace of the Messiah. You know, it amazes me. 700 years before his birth, Micah wrote this. 700 years. Folks, I don't even know what tomorrow looks like. But Micah knew because God had placed it within him to write down that this would be the place where Jesus would be born. 700 years before he came. Do you know that Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies? Over 300 Old Testament prophecies. Now, I'm going to give you just six of them this morning that deal around his birth. But then I'm going to tell you the probability of him even fulfilling just these six. Number one would be he would be, uh, he would be human, and uh, not angel or anything like that, and he would be virgin born. Genesis 3.15, we talked about this last week. And he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus was... Uh, excuse me, God was speaking to the serpent and he was telling him, this is what's going to happen. And I'm not going to repeat everything that pastor said last week, but we understand this, that when it says between her seed and your seed, that her seed tells us that there was no seed in man that was a part of who Jesus was. And we've learned throughout scripture that the seed of man, part of, its, part of the curse was that the seed of man would carry with it a spiritual curse called the sin nature. And we're all born with it. We're all wrapped up in it. We're all covered in that sin nature. You don't believe me? Have children. They're rotten little savages. I heard Bodie Bauckham say one time, you know why God made babies babies? He said, because those suckers would kill you if they were big enough. But listen, I didn't have to teach my boys to say no and disobey. I didn't have to teach my boys to smack and hit each other. That, they came out knowing how to do that. 
But Jesus did not have human seed uh, or, or a male human seed that was a part of him. He was divine. God placed that seed within Mary's egg and he was born of a virgin. And folks, that is something that's key to the biblical story, to, to, to Bethlehem and everything else. Do you realize that there are Christian universities out there, or at least claim to be Christian universities, that professors are teaching that the virgin birth is fake? They're saying there's no way possible that could be done. You take away the virgin birth, folks, and Jesus had a sin nature, therefore He could not be our sacrifice, therefore we could not be born again. It is essential to our salvation and to the gospel message. The second thing, he would be Jewish. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And it's that last part that is so important to the gospel message. Because out of Abraham's seed would come the nation of Israel. And out of the nation of Israel would come the tribe of Judah, which was the kingly tribe. And out of that tribe came David, which led to coming Jesus Christ. So how are all the families of the earth blessed? Because of this. You would think it would just deal with the nation of Israel. But if you understand, Jesus is for everyone, isn't He? He's not just for the Jew. He's for the Gentile. And as I look around this room, I don't know that we have any full-blooded Jews here. We're all Gentile. Thank God. God made a way for us to be born again. That's why we come and worship on Sunday. We come because Jesus Christ is the answer. Number three, he would be from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. And as I shared just a few minutes ago, both genealogies lead Jesus to that rightful place to be king. Number four, he would be from David's lineage, 2 Samuel Samuel chapter 7, I believe it's verse 13, he says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then verse 16, I and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. God made it very clear, forever, forever, forever. Well, who's the only king that's going to last forever? King of kings and Lord of lords. His name is Jesus, folks. We learn about it in Scripture. And I don't care what this world thinks. I don't care what people think. Joe Biden is not the ruler of the free world. And I'm going to tell you this, no other nation is and no other king or leader, but Jesus Christ will reign supreme one day. And I'm glad to be on his team, aren't you? I sure don't want to be on the other team. Number five, he would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 14. We saw that in Genesis chapter 3, but we also see it here again in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Number 6, He will be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5, 2, we've already read that. But you, Bethlehem, Bethlehem, Epaphrathah, 
Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me this one to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Six of 300 prophecies fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Now, let's get to the probability. There was a mathematician, I guess, that put this together. I had read it one time. I wish I could remember where. But this is what he said. He said, the probability of Jesus fulfilling even five prophecies from the Old Testament, the probability of him only doing five, he says, is if you were to take the entire state of Texas and fill it four feet deep with silver dollars. He said, then you take one silver dollar and you put a red X on it. You get in a helicopter or an airplane or whatever and you fly over the state of Texas and somewhere you drop that and it lands somewhere in the state of Texas. He said, then you take an individual, you blindfold them, and then you send them out to find that silver dollar. He said, the probability of them finding it on the first try. Now, not, not, not the 500,000th or millionth, but on the first try is the probability of Jesus fulfilling even five Old Testament prophecies. Now, I want you to think about that. He fulfilled 300 of them. Jesus is exactly who he said he was. And I don't care what the world says. I don't care what they, what they believe. I know it to be true that Jesus is the Son of the living God and he's the Savior of my life. Do you know that this morning, though? Is Jesus just another historical figure that you know things about, or do you know him personally? Listen, he's exactly who he said he was. And sadly, the world has rejected him. Even the church has become to reject him. You know how I know that? The church of the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3. Verse 20, we use it for salvation, but if you really understand the context of the verse, is Jesus standing outside the door of the church. He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man will let me in, I will come and sup with him. The church has pushed Jesus out. We're more concerned about our, our, our activities, our social events, making people happy, having things convenient, than living for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I want to be that church of Philadelphia where he says, Though you are small, you have not denied my name, and you have not denied my word. Folks, it is a sad day when the church begins to deny the name of Jesus Christ and deny the Word of God. There are local churches in this area. I shared this story one time, and I'm going to share it because I think it's important because, folks, we need to get back to who Jesus is. And we as a church need to start living like we believe it, standing on it, being willing to suffer for it. But I was sitting in a, my doctor's office, and there was a lady sitting across from me, and her daughter was sitting there. And they had these shirts on that says, baptized in Christ or something like that. And I said, man, I like your shirt. Said, oh, yeah, we got that yesterday from such and such church. I said, awesome. I said, well, man, that's, that's great. She said, yeah, I've always wanted to be baptized, and I've always wanted my, my daughter to be baptized. And a friend of mine goes to the church, and she said they wanted 700 baptisms in seven years. And they were a little short this year. And they said, would, would you want to come and be baptized? And she said, okay. And I'll tell you, I, 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 my mouth almost dropped. I'm glad it didn't. But I said, all right, Lord, here's an opportunity. I said, you know what? Baptism is a wonderful thing because it's a reflection 
of a person who's died to themselves and been resurrected in Christ became a new creation. And I'm glad that's happened to you and your daughter. And she was like, yeah, okay. Had no idea. And I'm sitting here thinking, what kind of church baptizes someone who doesn't have their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and who He is? Oh, folks, the story of Bethlehem. What an amazing little town it was. So many wonderful things happened there, but the greatest thing of all time happened there when Jesus Christ was born. Number two, the people of Bethlehem. The people of Bethlehem. Over in the book of Luke, Chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, we learn about two of the biggest characters that are found within this story. And it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. You know, Caesar Augustus may have been ruling and thinking he was doing what he was supposed to be doing, but let's get real here. God was in control of every event that happened at Bethlehem, and at this time. It is not by accident that Joseph was from Bethlehem. For God to fulfill the prophecy that he would be born, that Jesus would be born in that that small town of Bethlehem in southern Judea, in southern Judah, excuse me, he made sure that Joseph was from there because he had everything planned out just perfectly. You know what, folks? This tells us about the sovereignty of God. We as Christians sometimes forget that God is in control of every situation of our life. And right here, we are seeing that God is in control of this and He's making everything work out. So in order for this prophecy to be fulfilled, this act of taxation was brought to Joseph and Mary so that they would come to Bethlehem, Ephrata. I like using that last word because it sets it apart from the other Bethlehem. We need to know which one it was. You see, Rome would take a census every 14 years. Every Jewish male would have to go to the town uh, where their fathers were born. And they would have to record their name, their occupation, their property, and their family, and then they would be taxed. But remember again that God was ordaining this, planning this, and so it brings uh, to life even Luke 1.38 where Mary said, Be it thou according to your word. God's word is always going to be fulfilled, folks. It cannot be. Be wrong. Every promise, every prophecy, everything that God said in His Word is 100% true and accurate. And Mary knew when she even said those words, she said, this meant from then on her life would be a part of the fulfillment of divine prophecy. You know, folks, when we surrender our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, when the Holy Spirit comes, shows us our darkness and our wretchedness and our sin, and we turn over ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, surrender, we die to self or resurrected in Christ, then our life no longer belongs to us. God will do and perfect His will and His purpose in us, just as He did with Mary. 
You know, Joseph and Mary, they were, they were husband and wife at this point, but they had not consummated their marriage until Jesus was born. It's one reason she's called his espoused wife. And they traveled 80 miles to Bethlehem from Nazareth. Man, it must have been tough riding that donkey, wasn't it? Oh, come on, y'all say, no, and that ain't right. You know, we don't know how they got there. Could they have rode a donkey? Maybe. Could they have walked? But either way, it was an 80-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem that was taking Mary and Joseph to be a part of the greatest moment in history. Or one of the greatest moments in history. It was a hard journey, I can only imagine. But you know what? I bet it was probably nice for Mary to get away from the busybodies of Nazareth. Y'all, I want you to understand what Mary went through. You're talking about a servant's heart. You're talking about somebody willing to sacrifice it all for the Lord. Here's this young girl, probably 14, 15 years old. The angel shows up to her and says, you're going to give birth to the Messiah. She says, how can I? I've not been with a man. He says, the Most High will come upon you and you will give birth to a son. Back in that day, if you remember the story, Joseph had every right to take her out of the city and stone her to death because it would look like she had been unfaithful to her husband. But Joseph was a good man, and of course we know that even Gabriel came to him and told him what was going on, and he believed in faith. But the people probably didn't understand, and they probably cut their eyes at her, talked about her, talked behind her back, not knowing that God had chosen her for this great responsibility. But you know, I always try to imagine thinking, wow, for God to have chosen Joseph and Mary to be a part of this, to, to, to have given birth for Mary to give him birth to the Son of God. But you know, the Bible tells us in the story here that they were definitely good parents. They were very caring parents. It says that Mary wrapped Jesus up in those long strips of cloth called swaddling clothes. What this would do, it would give his limbs strength and it would protect him. She was going to care for that child because she understood that child had a purpose. And as a loving mother, she took that child in her arms. And I'm sure the thoughts went through her mind. You know, we, we sing that song, Mary, Did You Know? Well, of course she knew. She knew what God had called her to do. She knew what was going to happen. She knew that she held in her arms the Son of the living God. Whew. Can you imagine And there Joseph stood by her side. And it says that they laid him in a manger. This was a trough for the feeding of animals. I'll tell you, there's a lot of scholars today that believe that Jesus was born in a, in a cave for the housing of animals and things like that, and the trough was in there. But really, the, there's no biblical record to say where he was. We, for all we know, the trough could have been in a field somewhere. But either way... I'm sitting here thinking to myself, here comes Jesus, the Son of the living God, and He's born, and He's laid in a, 
a trough where animals ate? Why not a bed of satin? Why not a palace? But either way, these first two people of Bethlehem were Joseph and Mary. They were preordained parents of the Lord Jesus Christ so that prophecy could be fulfilled. Folks, get that into your mind and think about it as often as you can because in the Christmas season, it's very easy to forget these things because we're looking forward to being with family. We're looking forward to other things. But we need to remember Jesus Christ. We need to remember Him in every aspect. We need to understand why He came, why the people He was given to, what was their purpose in all of this. But then we come to the second group of people in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 2. It says, So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the king, the things that they had heard and seen as it was told to them. Think about this. The first announcement of the Savior's birth was brought to shepherds. Do you remember when, when William and Kate got married and they, they had their first child? Boy, it was all over the news. Oh, they've had their first baby and everything else. Royalty was born. But the night that Jesus was born, it wasn't announced on CNN or Fox News or any other news channel. It was brought to shepherds who were abiding in the fields, watching over their flock. You know, I don't know if you know this, but shepherds were really the outcasts of Israel. They were kind of the lowest of the low. People just, they were there and they knew they had a job, but they could just stay where they were at. They were made unclean by their occupation and were away from the temple for weeks at a time, and so they couldn't come back and find that cleansing. And so people just kind of pushed them aside. But you know, God, He didn't call the scribes or the priests or the mighty or the rich. He called the lowly. Luke 51, 51 through 53 says, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. You know, what a blessing to think that God would send the announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ through the angel that we believe is Gabriel, which first made the announcement and then the heavenly hosts began to come in and praise God and saying those faithful words, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Why peace on earth? Because Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. He's the one that brings peace. And He brought it to these shepherds and He told them, what was going to happen. And I'm gonna, I want you to understand these. Shepherds were kind of no-nonsense guys. You know, they're not just, they're not going to, they're not easily fooled, okay? They were real men. They were hardworking. They were what you would call the blue-collar workers of that day. So if they saw angels, you could believe it. And I think about that. God used these hardworking men to be the first witnesses that His Son had come into the world. They were a part of the as uh, I think it was Hoffer, Lug, uh, 
Lecoq who said, the first Christmas rush. <laughs> Can you imagine? You're out there taking care of your sheep, and all of a sudden this bright angel stands and or, or is hovering above you, and he begins to tell you this wonderful announcement. And then all of a sudden a host of angels come in proclaiming the Messiah's birth. I bet they couldn't wait to get to that manger to find this babe. The promised Messiah that Israel had been looking for, that Isaiah had prophesied, that Micah had prophesied, and many others. In fact, when it says that they went and searched, that word search actually means to diligently search. They were not going to give up until they found him. They received by faith the message of the angel. Well, doesn't it sound like salvation a little bit? The message was brought, they received it by faith, and in obedience they responded. And they reported the good news to others. Do you know in Jewish law, shepherds were not allowed to even testify in a court of law? They weren't allowed in there. But yet God chose shepherds to be the first witnesses for the Savior, Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad God just doesn't do it the way that we think He should do it? You know, many times in my life, I've wanted God to do something in a different way. And there were times I was disappointed until I finally looked back and saw what God did and realized that what God was doing was all a part of a master plan that He fulfilled. And He did that in this small little town called Bethlehem. And He took very ordinary people, Joseph and Mary. Joseph was a carpenter, a poor man. Shepherds the outcasts of Israel. You know, when I think of those shepherds, I think, I think of myself. Who am I that Jesus would die for me? That Jesus would come? I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I didn't do anything to, to have God decide that I was worthy of it. Just out of love, he came and he gave himself. As we come to the end, I want to... This next part. You ever had those moments where you're just studying the Word of God and all of a sudden you're just like, oh yeah. You get to shouting a little bit maybe. Somebody's in the house with you like, what? what's going on? You might just rear back and say, glory! Like the old preachers of old. Hallelujah! Ain't God good? Do you know the question arises, why Bethlehem? Why not Jerusalem? Or even the great city of Rome? We have already seen that the prophecy chose this place because David was born there and many other reasons. And Jesus is the everlasting King. But I want to read a verse to you in Micah 4.8. It says this, And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now I will tell you that most theologians, and I even I agree with the interpretation here, that this verse refers to the millennial kingdom. 
It refers that Jerusalem will be a watchtower over the flock of Israel. Jesus will set up His kingdom and He will reign for a thousand years on this earth and He will watch over His flock from Jerusalem. But in my studies, there's another school of thought I found about Bethlehem and I think it applies here as well. In his book, The Life and Times of the Messiah, Alfred Edersheim speaks of the Migdal Eder. Now, the Migdal Eder is kind of that same term that's used in Micah 4.8, the watchtower of the flock. That's what it means. But what is unique about this place and tower is that there were, these were not ordinary shepherds or sheep. Okay? There was something different. Now, remember, this Bethlehem lay about five miles south of Jerusalem. Okay? Well, this is what Edersheim states uh, in, his, in his book. He says that the shepherds were in charge of the flock that provided the lambs for the temple for sacrifice. Now, a few years ago, I, I shared this um, with y'all before, but I, I'll tell you, I just, uh, even back when I first read it and, and even this time studying again and looking at it, it just, it just thrills my soul to think about this. So I want you to think about it. Jesus could have been born in the same very place that the sacrificial lambs were born and visited by the shepherds who cared for them. If his, uh, if his history is true and what he has found about this, this special tower, Jesus Christ was born in the same place as those lambs for sacrifice. Now, do you think that's coincidence? I think not. What a joy to know that possibly this was the place of those lambs that were taken to Jerusalem, that were laid upon the altar, whose throats were clut and clut, um, cut, their blood was shed, laid upon the, the, the Ark of the Covenant for the, for the nation of Israel to cover their sins for only one year. But Jesus Christ was born in the same place, and one day in Jerusalem, five miles away, He would hang on a cross suspended between heaven and earth, and He would be cut and he would be bruised, and he would bleed, and his blood would cover the multitude of our sins. Jesus was the lamb of our sacrifice. He was the one that took our place. Bethlehem was the birthplace of Jesus. Bethlehem was the birthplace of sacrificial lambs. Jesus is our king and our lamb sacrificed before the foundation of the world. Is it any wonder that the birthplace of Jesus foreshadowed His coming to die in our place? God has a way of revealing every wonderful truth about who He is and, and what He's done for us. I want you to think about this church. Bethlehem brings us our Messiah. He brings us, it brings us our Savior, the one who would die, the one who would take God's wrath so that we could go free. Bethlehem truly is the house of bread. We are where, where the bread of life was brought forth for all mankind so that we could be saved. And if you partake of this bread, Jesus said, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can be a part of me. Now we know Jesus wasn't speaking literally, but what He was saying is giving yourself completely to me for my purpose and my use. You know, I say this, and I'll say it again as, as, 
as the angel said it that night, Rejoice, O earth, your Savior has come. The Messiah is here. Do you realize that for 400 years, God was silent? From Malachi to the book of Matthew, there was no word from God. God was completely silent after that, that last book. A lot of different things happened there. A lot of new laws that the Jews just came up with themselves, but they never heard anything from God. But when God spoke again, as we talked about last week, the Shekinah glory shone with all of its brilliance that night, proclaiming that the Messiah had come. Boy, 400 years of silence. To hear that when it was first spoken, I think that's worth it. Jesus had come. He was proclaiming the Messiah in human flesh. John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, church, man can be reconciled to God. No longer are we separated. No longer are we under a sacrificial system. Now we can come and we can have an intimate and personal relationship with the God who created us because of Bethlehem. Oh, a small little town with a great impact on all of humanity. You know, maybe some of you, as our pastor's been preaching on the gospel, he's been preaching what the true gospel is and what the true gospel brings. It's a changed life. Sometimes I hear testimonies of people and, and I cringe because they're missing the most important elements of salvation. Oh, when I was little, I walked an aisle and preacher led me in a prayer and I asked Jesus into my heart and I was baptized and went on from there. But we forget that when Jesus comes into a life, there's something that has to happen to us and that's called death. We have to die to ourselves. In August, I believe it was August 17, 1991, Kent Wilson died. And I'm glad that sucker died. Because he's rotten. He's wretched. He's rancid. He's evil. He's wicked. God showed me my need for the Savior. He showed me my darkened heart. He showed me the blackness of my own life. He showed me that I was without hope in this world. And I'll tell you, I felt like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, 5 when he said, Oh, woe is me, judgment upon me. I am undone. Undone means destroy me. God, just destroy me. I am so wicked and evil. But God in His grace reached down to Kent Wilson that night and He said, Kent, you're lost, but I've come to save you. And in that moment, all I could do was cry out, Jesus, save me. Please, Jesus, just save me. And my life has never been the same. 31 years I've known the Lord. Oh, listen, I hate that Kent Wilson sometimes, he likes to resurrect his old nasty self up sometimes. That old flesh and sin nature is just rotten to the core and it likes to, to get into my life at times. But I can tell you from that day forward, my life changed 
forever. God cleaned up my mouth. He broke the chains of addiction and sin in my life. And He gave me new life. I fell in love with the church. I fell in love with the Word of God. I fell in love with the lost. I wanted to see people saved. And I wanted to to know that they were going to be able to go to heaven one day. Because what I had found was the best thing in the world. I've shared this illustration before in sermons in the past. But God speaks through creation. And when I think of how God just changed my life, I think of a little bird called a chickadee. If you've never heard of the chickadee, it's a cool little bird. Now here's the thing that's cool about the chickadee. The chickadee, what it will do whenever it finds food, it'll go out and leave its nest and it'll find food. It won't eat. It'll get up in the top of the tree and it'll chirp its little head off to tell the other chickadees where the food is. And when they get there, they'll go down and feast together. Talk about evangelism being spoken through nature. God saved me and that day it became the joy and the passion of my heart to tell others Jesus is the answer for your life. Come, I'm just a beggar telling other beggars where to find food. And let me tell you, the bread of life, he tastes pretty good. God changed my life. Where are you at this morning? Has God changed your life? You've been sitting under some of the most powerful preaching I've ever sat under. I'm not talking about this morning. I'm talking about our pastor. He preaches the Word of God faithfully. And I'm not trying to to build up the man because it's the Holy Spirit and the Jesus within the man that makes him the man. And I know he'll say that himself. But God has used him to preach the gospel. And I believe that there are some of you still sitting out there and it's eating at you. You remember remember Saul? He was the one that they laid their cloaks down when Stephen was stoned and Stephen said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Said the same words of Jesus as Savior. Well, when Jesus shows up on the road to Damascus and confronts Paul, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. Now let me explain what the pricks are. Shepherds, when sheep would get out of line, they had, a, they had a pole, or at least on their staff, they had a nail on the end of it. And they'd poke that sheep and say, get back in line. To me, what Jesus was talking about, says, Saul, Saul, it's hard for you because you know what's been eating at you what happened with Stephen. You heard his words. You're under conviction. It's hard for you to fight the conviction. And we know that day that Saul became a believer and eventually God changed his name to Paul and he became the greatest man that ever lived under the Lord, except for the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul loved Jesus and used to kill Christians and he went out and started converting them. What a, what a testimony. But let me ask you something. Why won't you give up and surrender to God today? You've heard the message week after week, and you're sitting here, and I know how you are because, you know, this is the way I used to be before I got saved because I had all the religion in the world. I was a good little Baptist. 
Man, I could tell you everything there was to know about a Baptist church. Because I had grown up in it. But that day, I found out that Baptist wasn't going to save me. I needed a relationship with Jesus Christ. And folks, there is a difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Him. You ask those who have been recently saved, who have been doing the work of the Lord for all these years, and ask them what their relationship's like now, and they'll say, oh, it's way different. Because when you know Jesus, and you know Him personally and intimately, oh, there's nothing better. Don't let pride keep you from there. Listen, pride tried to keep me from doing it. That night when God called, I was like, but God, I just got done serving you. God, I just got done, I mean, I've preached in the pulpit. I've, I've, I've even shared the gospel with people that have gotten saved. How in the world can I be lost? Lost people can't do that. Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, Not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does my Father's will. Are you doing the Father's will? Are you witnessing outside these doors? Listen, it's not just the Father's will to be in the church. It's the Father's will to go out and be the church to the lost and dying world and share the gospel. And when pastor stood up here a few weeks ago, my mouth dropped. I had never heard that, that percentage before when he said like 97% of Christians today will never share their faith verbally in their lifetime. <clears throat> You're lost. Charles Spurgeon said it best. He said, if somebody claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to be born again, but they have no desire to win the lost, they're not saved. Because the one desire God will put within a person who is a believer is a love for the lost. The first fruit of the Spirit is love. Many here have a tree up in your home. Gifts may be under it. Gifts will be placed under it. 2,000 years ago, Jesus hung on a wooden tree, didn't He? Suspended between heaven and earth, and under that tree lies a gift for you and all who receive it. Ephesians 1.7 says, We've been redeemed by His blood and given the forgiveness of sin. How do we get forgiveness of sin? We got to come to an old rugged cross and we got to die to ourselves, be resurrected in Christ, and then walk in a new way of life. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. I'm glad I'm a new creation in Christ because that old Kent Wilson, he wasn't worth, worth squat. But now I'm a new creature in Christ. Where are you at this morning, dear church member? Are you a part of the body of Christ? Do you know Jesus intimately and personally? Or is He just another name that you've known your whole life, but you've really never known Him intimately? Are you sitting there week after week as pastor preaches and you're fighting and you're tossing and turning with whether you're saved or not? Listen, the Bible is very clear. The Spirit of God testifies to the children of God that they are. If you can go to God and say, God, I'm having struggles, I'm having doubts, I want to make sure that everything is right. If the Spirit of God doesn't testify to you that you're a child of God in that moment, then you probably need to get things right before the Lord. I wouldn't waste another moment. God sent Jesus to be born at Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a, was a special place. But folks, the most important place Jesus wants to dwell is within your life.
by the person of the Holy Spirit. That's where He wants to be born. He wants you to die so that He can be born, so that He can have control of your life. What will you do with Him this morning? We're going to stand in just a moment and I'm just going to have, Miss Suzette, if you'll just play. I want you to be praying. First of all, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're not 100% sure, let me ask you, if you died today, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt you'd be in heaven with Jesus Christ? No doubt about it. You know it 100%. There is no, not even one smidgen of doubt. You know how I know you can believe that well and know that well? 1 Thessalonians 1.5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in, the hope, but in power and the Holy Spirit with much assurance. Not a little assurance, much assurance. You're going to know if you had an encounter with God. And if you haven't had that encounter with God, would you come this morning? Come talk with me. I'd love to tell you. Let Jesus save your life. He wants to. Second of all, if you know somebody that's lost, a family member, a friend, a co-worker, I want you to pray for them this morning. Maybe come to these altars. The most unused place in the church today is the altars. Come and pray for that person and say, God, save their soul. If God is not willing that any would perish, why should we be willing? Come and pray for them. If you want to be a member of this church, you come. We'd love to have you. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, been baptized by immersion, you come be a member of this church. We'd love to see you become a part and serve here with us as we proclaim the message of the kingdom. Whatever God is doing in your life this morning, let Him have His will and way. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank You for this morning. And I just pray that Your will will be done in our lives. In Jesus' name.